such a privilege to be here. Thanks, Omo. Um, I'm so thankful for this church. Um, I help lead a, a missions base in Pochisterum. We're with an organization called Youth of the Mission. Um, and we're, we're called Fire and Fragrance. And just for me to demystify w- why it's different things. It's like Shofar, Shofar um, George is not Shofar Stellenbosch. It's still Shofar, but there's a whole different way that it functions with leadership. Da, 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 da. Fire and Fragrance is the same thing when it comes to Youth of the Mission. We're just a different household within the greater family. But we're still Youth of the Mission. So... About three years ago, we pioneered a base there um, with 27 people from all over the world. I think we're about 110 full-time staff now, which is a pretty wild jump in people. And um, we do everything from Bible translation to working with, this last week, we've seen six prostitutes come out off the streets, um, created jobs for them. It's pretty wild. Do you know, do you know who started that ministry? It's a 23-year-old, young, petite little girl called Caitlin, right? She's tiny right and she has a master's in chemical engineering and she came and did our bible school and she was doing an outreach among um, the street people and she saw these prostitutes and she's like why is any, not anybody doing something about the prostitutes she came to me and she said gabe can we do something about the prostitutes and i was like well i i'm busy if you got the vision you got the mission right so i said hey you, you go for it and she said well what permission do i need and she it seems jesus gave you permission go right and so then about six weeks later she calls me she's like um, I don't really know what to do right now. There's like 20 staff committed to helping me. It's like our second largest ministry pretty much right now in six weeks. She's never led anything in Christian ministry in her life before, right? And they're like seeing like these Nigerian drug lords come to them, asking them about Jesus. And she's like this size. You guys, it's wild. Like the half of the time I tell her, please don't tell me things that's going to make me stop you, right? Because she, <laughs> she told us yeah, the Vandalon is such a dangerous area in Poch, Right? The other day, she went into the main, like, drug area there and just walked up to all these Nigerians and asked them, hey, like, I have these friends. Can we become friends with you guys? And if some of these girls, if you don't want to use them anymore, we'll take them and help them. Because she's like, I don't know how else to help these women. And these guys are, like, walking around with their guns, like, ready to legitimately kill people. And she just got touched by Jesus, and she's changing a city. So... That's kind of a little bit of what we do that. We do Bible translation. There's, a, uh, no, there's 740 languages in Africa that's not translated. Think about it. It's 200 million people, right? They would never hear for God so loved the world. Never. No, no option to hear that, right? Have never heard that murder is a sin because nobody's taught them because they don't have the word. So we're mega committed to that. And then we do everything from high schools, universities, and all the in-between. So that's it. And then Exalted used to be up there. That's, there is it. Um, what is this about? This is just we're having, we're creating momentum towards grassroots movement. What does grassroots mean? It means that it's not primarily Amu that's generating the energy in your heart to see stuff happen. Right? That is wonderful of Amu because he's a phenomenal leader. I'll follow him anywhere. Right? But it's amazing if Amu tells you, hey, let's go like, change the world. It's a different thing if you and your house go like, I'm going to change the world, right? And the most powerful moments is when like the the structural leadership and grassroots movement come together and that happens. That's where real reformation happens, right? So so our idea with Exalted is is based on Isaiah 6 verse 1. We said, I saw the Lord in the year the King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, right? And then he has this encounter with Jesus and this encounter leads to a moment where he realizes his sinfulness, he repents of it, God makes a way, his sins are atoned for, 
And then the next portion happens is he gets caught up in this conversation that happens between the Trinity where they talk about who will we send, right? And what's Isaiah's first response, right? He's not going like, man, I wonder if there's time in my schedule, right? No, no, no. He saw the Lord high and exalted. And his first question is, here I am, send me. Like, I'll go, right? So our heart is to see kind of like these three phases within this, um, these gatherings. Number one is they see the Lord high and exalted. It's all about Jesus. Number two is in seeing him, this repentance, this response moments that happens where God sets us free of our sins. And then lastly is when we're seeing his beauty, when we have set free from our brokenness, right, we're automatically commissioned, right, to fulfill what God has called us for in our area of society. And so it's Francis Chan and Andy Bird, two of our great friends, phenomenal leaders that's going to come and we're just going to hope that God causes chaos, okay? Chaos is good. South Africa needs godly chaos. We have enough ungodly chaos, right? Sometimes South Africa feels like we have so much ungodly chaos and so much um, structural order, right? Sometimes we just need some ungodly chaos to challenge, a godly chaos to challenge all the ungodly cha- um, chaos. And here's why, as I'm seeing among young people, we work with so many young people, right? They want to do stuff, right? We have another young leader that she was a prim at a, at a hostel, and um, she got saved, and she did one of our schools, and she's on staff now. And she's like, hey, Gabe, what do I do, right? And so a lot of young, especially Afrikaans people, they, very, they want orders, right? They, they sometimes struggle to think for themselves. I don't mean in a weird way. We've so taught people to think, command me, and I'll obey, right? Which is great if you want to create robots. It's not really good if you want to create problem solvers, right? And um, she's like, what do I do? And I go like, well, here's what you do. You go look at the things that make your heart burn, and you go do one of those things. And if you need money or you think you're in trouble, call me. I'll help you, right? So the other day, she texts me. She's like, hey, Gabe, we did this worship night with all the hostels, a few hostels in the university. Well, she didn't even ask me for permission. A few hundred people showed up, and they're at the Colfane, which is like a fountain at the book. And they're baptizing like 20, 30 young people. And she's like, I don't know if we can get in trouble, but all these people got saved. We don't know what to do with them, Right? And I'm seeing like these young people, like if we just give them permission to do things for God, you know what they do? They do things for God. It's kind of, it's revolutionary, right? If you, if, you take away, if you take away hindrances, they do things. And I just believe that's a part of what God is doing on the earth right now. He's taking away hindrances, right? Because he's raising up so many secure leaders. And that's one thing what I love about Omo, right? Omo is such like, he provokes me all the time. Half of the stuff I'm doing now, I wouldn't have done if Omo didn't tell me, why are you not doing this? And um, I bet you there's a few people in the church that feel the same way, right? That's just kind of one of his strengths. But um, it's such a privilege, and I would not have talked about anything if Omo didn't tell me. I would have just preached the sermon. So thank you. Can I pray for us? Is everybody okay? You're here? You're awake this morning? Omo took me on a 5K run yesterday, and he almost murdered me. All right? But thanks, Omo. I love you, buddy. So Lord, we thank you. Jesus, there's no one like you. Thank you that we get to be together in church, Lord. Thank you that we don't have to hide in holes. We don't have to be afraid, God, that we can come together. We can worship your name loudly. And Lord, we expect to meet with you today. God, thank you that um, we love to be a part of what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, this morning I get to share about revival and reformation, which is really two topics that's really close to my heart. And then I'm going to give a bit of a preface. This morning I'm going to share about this, and this evening I'm going to kind of do part two. Right? So be free, feel free to come this evening as well if you want to hear how I finish the sermon. Um, but revival and reformation is something you need to understand. 
Both these terms are extra-biblical. Say extra-biblical. Right? It doesn't mean they're unbiblical. It just means they're extra to the Bible. You don't find these words like this in the Bible. Okay? But you also don't find the word Trinity in the Bible. Okay? Just because something is not in the Bible doesn't mean it's not in the Bible. Right? It just means that you kind of have to know the Bible for you to understand that this is actually in the Bible. Okay? And so I want to start that way because neither of these two things they're not the end goal, okay? And I'm going to kind of start with something here that's not really where I want to land, but I want to say this before I go to what I want to talk about. Neither reformation or revival is the end goal. God is the end goal. Okay, you know like at the end of the age when Jesus comes back and all things are being made new, right? And we're with him forever. There's not going to be ministry anymore. Everybody's going to be saved. There's not going to be justice movements anymore. Everything will be injustice. Like everything will be okay. Like nothing of that will matter. And then how you built your life and valuing God as the ultimate goal is the thing that will sustain you. I don't want to get to heaven and go like, what do I do now? All the work is done. I've spent my life working hard for him. And I, I, I kind of want to start this way because I think so many times, and I lead a missions organization, so I, I'm firstly guilty of this. So many times whenever we give ourselves to, to these causes, it's easy to be satisfied with work because I can measure work. Sometimes it's very hard to be satisfied with God. I don't know, you all might be way more Christian than I am. Okay, who's ever been bored in your quiet time? Anybody? The rest of you are lying, I'm just saying, okay? Right, and, and it's not because God is boring, it's because I'm boring. Right, it's because I came to the end of my excitement of him, and then he needs to conquer me again and show me that he's good. Right, but so many times with these, fra- with these phrases, these become things that drive us primarily. And whenever these things drive us primarily, they will burn you, out, uh, burn you out pretty quickly. These things always, they're an outflow of our primary drive, which is the love of God. It is our primary drive is this, that I am lavishly loved. I am offensively loved. Like God loved me while yet I was a sinner. I was in my greatest shame, my deepest weakness, And Jesus stepped into my life and he says, I pick you. Right? And then he just did, he didn't just do it once. I I, I wasn't just saved past tense. Right? That's justification. I am being saved, present tense, which is sanctification. And I will be forever saved, which is future tense, which is glorification. Like Jesus permanently steps into my weakness and he conforms me into the image of his son, not through force, but through love. Is a way that he consistently shows that he is faithful, that he is just, and he is true. That r- r- consistent revelation, that thankfulness that Amor is speaking about, is that God consistently stays good. Right? In Exodus 34, it's like these five phrases. God lets his goodness pass in front of Moses. And there's these five things. The first of those five things, he says, I am this, is what he is? Compassionate. Right? The Hebrew word for compassion there, this is like, Side note, okay? It's the same Hebrew word for a womb of a mother. 
And then God goes on in Isaiah and says, even if a mother would forgive, forget her children, nursing mother would forget her child, I will never forget you. Now, Anastasia is 11 months old. My wife will claw you to death if you try to take her child. Right? And she's a weak, broken human that has imperfect love. Think about the perfect father. How he then says, even if a mother would forget you, I'll never forget you. And then we jump to the New Testament and Jesus overlooks Jerusalem. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how much do I long for you? I want to gather you like a mother hen. And it's the same word in the Greek that is in the Hebrew. It's like that word for nurture, for love. Now hear me in this as we talk about revival and reformation. That revelation that God's compassionate and loving nature is the first thing that he reveals. We need to understand these things do not exist outside of us first realizing the revelation of how deeply God loves us personally. Right? Because revival is being made alive on the inside and reformation is the external change of the internal reality. Does it make sense? I'm on mate. Okay? So we need to realize that what God changes on the inside through making us alive, He wants to spill out. But if we're internally bankrupt, we will never be externally fruitful in this. The only thing that feeds us internally in a perfect way is love. Now, that is not goosebump love. It might be goosebumps. It's not gooey love. It might be gooey, right? But it is the same love that God will come back and judge the nations of the earth for. The same love at the end of Revelation, it says, His robe is dripped in the blood of the nations. You know, like love requires God's justice. So this love is not just a good feeling. It is a force behind who God is in all of His actions. Everybody with me? Okay, so when we talk about these things, we need to understand, firstly, these things come from love. And it's important that we do not misunderstand what that love means. Now, there's a guy that I deeply love and deeply disagree with. Who has people like that that you listen to? Like preachers or theologians you read. It's like, I love so much. And then I, I just, this area, I'm not going to agree with you here. Right? This is a quote by John Piper. <clears throat> and um, he's awesome. And very reformed. And um, I love it. I, I just love him. His writing is phenomenal on the absolute majesty and worth of God. If you struggle to understand how valuable God is, read everything this guy writes. He says this, the greatest enemy of the hunger of God is not poison, but apple pie. Moy Leicester, you live in George, I'm just saying. It is not banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the prime time dribble of triviality while we drink it, what we drink in every night. If you don't feel a strong desire for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you have drunk too deeply and you're satisfied. It's because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things and there's no longer space for the great. This morning, as we talk about revival and reformation, here's what I want to talk about. I'm going to talk about a simple word. It's called apathy. Apathy. Say apathy. What John Piper is talking about here, he says that like, what is our greatest danger is not like some like cult somewhere. It's not COVID, right? God overcame COVID. Hallelujah. Yeah, anyway, let's not go there, right? So 
it is not these things that we sometimes make these ginormous deals about. Those things are important, of course. But the greatest danger to our Christian walk is our prime time series. The greatest danger to our Christian walk, honestly, in this area, potentially, it might be the amount of adventure you can have. Right? Like, we ran here yesterday, and I was like, if Poch of Sturm looked like this, I'll run four times a day. But I'll just, like, reply emails with voice text and Siri while I was running around if it looked like this. Like, that's what I would do. Right? But the greatest danger is not like these big sins. It is these little things that, st- that we stuff ourselves with, and, and it doesn't give us time or space in our soul, but also in our mind and capacity to actually be filled by that which is great. The word apathy comes from a Greek word, and it means this. Listen to this. This is very important. Without suffering. Without suffering. To be an apathetic people is a people that's not willing to suffer. Apathy. Right? And, and when we talk about revival and reformation, I'm going to go to the scriptures now. We need to understand that this without suffering goes in these two different ways. It's like, it, if I'm apathetic, I'm unwilling to suffer in the labor of love, which might be your quiet times, might be biblical studies. Right? I might not be willing to, to sit down and be bored for a few weeks. Right? I, I, I say this so much, but, but I'm going to over-communicate this. I always tell people in prayer, you never master prayer. Prayer masters you. Because nobody can master God. Prayer is the place where you go and meet with God. Prayer is the place where you get overshadowed by God. If you tell me you're a master of prayer, I'll tell you you're prideful and you're lying. Nobody masters prayer. If you read church history, the greatest mystics, the greatest intercessory warriors never said they understood prayer. They said, I found principles and God met me. And I know less now because it is a never-ending Mount Everest of glory and goodness that consistently overshadows me. So apathy in the place of the secret place, that area right there, that apathy is the unwillingness to suffer for, the, for being mundane and what does it mean to love God. A lot of times I tell young people when I work with them on this topic, I tell them, you will never change the world because it's too boring. Changing the world takes a lot of consistency. It's a lot of small things. It's really boring. And some of us are not just willing to have the suffering to just do the small little right thing every single day. Let's talk about moms that raise kids. Has there ever been a mom here that's been a little bit frustrated with like 17 kids running around and like the wildness, right? You can go like, yes, it's kind of been rough, right? But here's the thing. That little human and that little person you spend time with, the consistently, consistency of suffering and love there, you understand forever that little being will make a difference. That, that little being right there, those little kids, they will forever, the Bible says it's an arrow in your quilt. It shoots out, and that thing is a weapon that forever will torment the enemy if you do it right. right? I can preach a sermon, it can change 5,000 people. Let's say it's really good, it can change a million people. Right? If I have a child that loves God, it is a walking epistle that consistently everywhere changes things wherever it goes. Now, most people are too unwilling to be bored in that area, to spend the amount of time that's needed. 
to create something that will change the world forever. The second place where we need to think through this apathy word, our unwillingness to suffer, and this is really real, I can't, I'm going to kind of hit this hard, is the unwillingness to suffer by opening your eyes for what's around you. And this is something that I'm deeply, deeply, personally struggling with. In South Africa, we have become experts in hardening our hearts against injustice. Because it just feels like you won't be able to live. Remember, I picked up a friend a while ago from the airport. We have a lot of internationals that travel here. And um, we're halfway to Pot. We're just about to drive into Poch. And they're like, man, like, I'm just so rocked by the amount of poverty I see everywhere. And literally, my first thought is, what poverty? I'm like, we drove through the nice areas of Joburg. Like, we weren't really going through townships where there's deep poverty. And he's like, no, all the people like next to the streets is begging. And I realized I've had an apathetic heart to actually turn myself to look at the suffering person next to my car. Yesterday we were in um, Wilderness and one of my friends took us out for breakfast. And there we walked away. Certain things kind of assault apathy. One of the great things if you have something of high value in the area that you're apathetic of, you change your view on it, right? This little boy walks up to me, says, Wim, uncle, and he has a school form for a trip. He says, I want to go on this school trip. Can you help with any finances? Now, I didn't have any cash with me. Otherwise, I would have given everything I got, right? In the past, honestly, I would go, I'm sorry, I don't have money. I would have walked away. I literally, for about four hours yesterday, couldn't shake this little kid from me. Do you know why? Because I have Anastasia now. And all of a sudden, like, this little kid looks at me, and I cannot look at him like a problem. I have a child now, and I go, like, imagine she is going on the street asking people for money to go on a school sports trip. It it changes you. Like, my apathy, my unwillingness to suffer changes because I I can't look away because it's close to my heart. And I want to say this, that in most of the places that a lot of us would be, is the culture in South Africa has made us apathetic against deepering, wanting God. We've structured them into a safe place. And a deepering, wanting to see societal change. And, and I want to say this. If we truly want to see revival and reformation, we need to understand what Paul is saying. And I want to read us this piece of scripture. It is 2 Corinthians 5 from 14 to 15. It says this. It's Paul speaking about his life and he says for christ's love compels us that word compel there is a very strong greek word it almost says it forces us kind of says it forces us so the the love of christ is like imposing its will on me because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all that those who live say live should not live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now this is such a convicting piece of scripture. Here Paul speaks about it and he says that the reality is that love compels me. Like I'm, I'm forced by love to do what I do. What did he do? He traveled all over the world, right? And he got whipped, beaten, shipwrecked, stoned, right? And he kept going. He was like a machine that just kept running, right? It didn't want to stop. And he says, the fuel inside my tank is that love take, took a hold of me 
and I'm compelled by this love. Here's why. Is that the perfect son of God died on the cross and he was raised again so that I who was made alive with him when I got born again do not have the privilege anymore to live for myself. I do not have the privilege of apathy. Un unregenerated people have the privilege of apathy. Apathy is something that we never can lay hold of or can lay hold of us again. Why? Because we do not have the privilege to not suffer the way that he suffers for the injustice in me and in the world around me. Some of us need to suffer a little bit and look at the poverty of our own hearts and be shaken by the lack of God that's in me. But we numb ourselves with serious, with beautiful mountains, with whatever is around you. So I don't have to suffer too much with the reality that there's something in me that God needs to come and change. And in exactly the same way, sometimes our hearts are burning, but we're driving down the street. And whenever somebody begs next to you, who does this? You don't even look them in the eye. Can I just see honesty? Why? Because if you look in that person's eyes, you suffer. And I'm apathetic against suffering. My heart doesn't want to feel that. And I believe the foundation of revival and reformation is that we're so compelled by love that apathy cannot have a space in my life. That apathy cannot lay a hold of my internal world. That I will not lose hope, right, for this character thing in me. This thing that my husband or my wife always struggles with or my children, I've just kind of ignored it and micromanaged it. Instead of having the gospel of the kingdom break into that area and saying, God, I will consistently fight this thing till it's not there. If that's anger, if that is you being like lazy and not wanting to participate, like whatever that thing in your life is, if that's a porn habit, right? Some of us have grown apathetic because we don't want to have the suffering of knowing something on the inside is struggling to die. So we just ignore it, the micromanager. We get Christianese theology that makes it make sense. And we move on. And I believe that if we truly want to see a revival movement in our hearts, we need to kick apathy in the face. And go like, I will not stop believing that God can change this. I will not stop contending. I'll go to every course, to every seminar, to every seminar, second seminar, second course, to this thing. Because I will not allow hardness of heart to lay a hold of me. Because once I've laid a hold on the inside, it will lay a hold of the outside. That's why so many people in South Africa can get their solar, I, I love solar, I have no issue with it, can get their water pumps, can get off the grid and go like, peace out for the people living with nothing. Now, none of us will say that. But we have grown apathetic because we feel that circumstances has bound our hands to seeing real transformation. And some of us have believed it about our insides. And I would say most of us believe it about the outside. An area where you do not have hope that God can change it, Satan has already won. Think about corruption. Well, you live in the Western Cape. You don't... That's not a hard thing. You, you, you still have hope. Where I live, yo, guys, it's rough. And it's a consistent thing. I have to go like, God, I will not give my hope away. 
I, 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 I arrogantly refuse to give it away. I won't give it away to New Zealand or to Dubai. I'm here for a reason. This morning, what I want to bring to you guys, I want to ask you two questions. Number one, is in your internal world, in your walk with Jesus, where have you grown apathetic? Where have you believed for the last 10 years God said to you, you're meant to be a prayer warrior? And you've tried 17 times and you've just grown tired of the pain of failing. Where have some of you gone like, hey, my husband, I know God told me to help him to walk in his calling or my wife. And I've grown tired of the fights. I just want to be apathetic. I don't want, to, I want, don't want the pain. I don't want the suffering. I'm just going to stay quiet, come home, play good husband or good wife. Instead of doing what God asked me. The pain is not worth it. Where, where is that? And where have some of us, secondly, in the world around us, if you're a teacher at school, if you do some other business in government, in your environment in government, if you're a business person, that, where have you gone like, this is how the language sounds. I'm just going to do what's in front of me. Everything around you is burning down. I'm just going to do right this right here. You know, like Jesus was easily distracted. I hate that. Like, <laughs> I so, that like goes against my personality type. Okay. You know, like people barge into Jesus' life all the time on earth. And then they distracted him. And he, was, he had a mission that way. And he's like, yeah, yeah, woman with the issue of blood, you touch me, I turn around. Right? When have people touched you and you're unwilling to turn around? You're unwilling to move. Why? Because I'm on this thing. I'm apathetic against this pain. Where is it a family member that's cried out for help? Apathetic against their pain. We need to understand that if we want to see true revival and reformation, we need pliable hearts, moldable hearts that is willing to be distracted and moved when love requires it. Now, hear what I'm saying. It's not when urgency requires it. It's a great difference. It's a big difference. It's when love moves you. That little guy yesterday, I, like, I was almost a mess. We just don't carry cash with us anymore, so I couldn't legitimately not help him. But I looked into his eyes. I was like, man, like, think like this little choma. He wants just to go on a rugby tour. And it will cost him 200 rand. I can, give him, I can give him way more than 200 rand. And he just needed somebody to go like, I'll, I'll back you. And I think in South Africa, that is our biggest danger. Is that in externally, we have so hardened against the need that none of us do something. So the lady that works in our house, she's phenomenal. She is a phenomenal worker. And me and Michelle always said, my parents brought me up like this, we will never allow the people that work in our homes to just become maids and cleaners. Right? They are a part of our family. Right? So um, her husband is a, well, hopefully, he used to be an alcoholic. Right? So the first time she came in with a blue eye, my wife is a lawyer, and she actually specialized in domestic violence, right? 
and family law. So the first time she came in, Michelle sat down with her. And she's like, what happened? She told her, she's like, okay. And so then Michelle gave her a few tips about how not to be around your drunk husband when he wants to physically abuse you. Right now, who knows that like Michelle is a lawyer and she's busy and she's at work and she's a child. Taking time with our maid is effort and it's painful because she lives in a shack gets beaten by a drunk husband and we also want a clean house. I, I know none of you ever think like that. Right? I'm being very blunt right now, but I, I'm trying to poke at something. I'm purposefully poking at something now. So Michelle sat down in her lunchtime, talked with her, gave her a few tips. Saturday text Michelle. She's like, yo, Michelle, thank you so much. You came home drunk. I did what you said. Didn't fight with him. I kind of just put him in bed. He didn't beat me. Thank you so much. Took one lunch. So then, my parents are marriage counselors. Call my parents. Hey, Papa, Mama. Josephine. Say, no, man. They suck a little bit. Can you guys help? So my parents go to their place. They do marriage counseling with them. So then, we go like, hey, their place is too small. That might be it hard. So we build an extra wing to their place where they live right there's maybe a little bit of space would help them why because i i can't fix the whole township and the domestic violence but josephine that works in our house i can help her my heart can be moved by her now me and michelle are thinking okay how do we help her get her in for okay let's help a cleaning business she cleans really how well why about we get 10 young ladies from that area we teach josephine and how to teach them and then we create an LLC for her so she can kind of rent them out and help a thing, right? Great. So then we can change 11 lives. It will probably take us five hours a week. Okay, let's go. That, like, I have a job. My wife has a job, right? Do you know what that takes? It's like a little effort that's moved by somebody's blue eye to go like, I, I'm not just going to throw money at the problem because you know money is not going to help the problem, right? Like my life is the answer way more than my money. And I think when we talk about revival and reformation, imagine 50,000 South Africans do what me and Michelle just beongelukt did. Just, I just, just think implicationally speaking. What would happen if 50,000 South Africans, whenever they see the person working for them got abused by their husband or whatever happened, they came to work drunk, we didn't fire them, we tried 50,000. Imagine what happens to 50,000 households. Now, let's say each of those households has what? 3.7 average kids. That's 171,000 people. Changed. Boom. Okay, let's say there's 171,000 people. We give them a little bit extra money. We get them to good educated schools. And that now is of those kids, 50,000 of them go to good schools. They actually do pretty well because of our government. They can get the NISFAS grants. And those 50,000, 25,000 of them go to university. You know that happened because you looked at the blue eye? Now, that mother that used to be a maid, son will be an engineer. Right? Now, it, it progressively changes. Why am I saying this? I'm trying to kind of demystify this topic. To go like, it starts pretty practically in your own heart. Navigating how God has made you. Navigating Him not wanting you to be comfortable with being overcome by sin. 
And then secondly, it comes from looking around us and going like, what is touching my life? And what is moving my heart? And what do I do practically to change that now? It is not a hard thing to do. Except it takes you to suffer a little bit. And in our age of inconvenience, suffering is a sin. 